please take out your Bibles tonight and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This morning's sermon was based upon the expression as ugly as sin, that expression, that idiom, was the title of our morning sermon. And tonight we're going to have a second and somewhat, somewhat related sermon. The title of which is based on another idiom or another common expression in our speech. The title of tonight's lesson is, When the Cat's Away, the Mice Will Play. This is a common expression. It's an expression conveying the idea that when there is no cat around to keep them careful and cautious in their behavior, then mice can leap and frolic and party and play and parade themselves without inhibition and without any worries. We see the same thing in God's Old Testament people. It's the same thing basically they were reported as doing. And we are commanded not to follow their example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 5, it says, But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. We move on to verse 11 where it says that all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed, lest he fall. You know, one definition of this expression, when the cat's away, the mice will play, which I looked up, said this. This expression has been a proverb since about 1600. So this idea is about 500 and some odd years old. And what this expression means, when the cat's away, the mice will play, it means this, according to this particular resource, quote, Without supervision, people will do as they please, especially in disregarding or breaking rules. Without supervision, people will do as they please, especially in disregarding or breaking rules. And you know, while that can be a very common and sadly a very tragic and fatal flaw in mice and children, the same can also be said on occasion, especially biblically, Maybe not for mice, but certainly for men. For grown men, and sometimes for even the people of God. Who ought to know better. Just as we see in scripture. Let's turn to the actual account of this in Exodus chapter 32. Would you follow me there please? Exodus chapter 32 is probably, well it is, the best example I could think of, of this idea. When the cat's away, the mice will play. In Exodus 32, verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. 
For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. We're going to eat in front of this thing. Then they rose up early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is what 1 Corinthians 10 was talking about, is this very incident. When the cat's away, the mice will play. The moment the man of God was gone from their midst, the people played, and they strayed, and they disobeyed. They paraded themselves and they corrupted themselves before the Lord their God pretty much the moment Moses was gone. But here's the thing. Even though the man of God was away from them, the God of man was still with them and well aware of what they had done. Verses 7 through 10. We see it in these verses. The Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. For those of you that were here this morning, we talked about how ugly and disgusting sin was. Remember that? I want you to understand here that God says to Moses, These are your people who you brought down. God's disowned them. God has disowned them. He doesn't say, my people. He says, Moses, your people whom you brought out have corrupted themselves. Guess what? Their sin was so ugly to God. So ugly. That he couldn't stand it. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. The moment you turned around, Moses, and come up here, they just took off on their own and did what they wanted. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and indeed it's a stiff-necked bunch. Well, the Bible says people. God says, Now therefore, let me alone. Moses, get out of my way. That my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Were these God's people? Yes. But God is ready to destroy them over their sin because the moment the man of God left, when the cat's away, the mice began to play. Verse 15, we move down a little bit. It says, And Moses turned and went down from the mountain. Two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other. They were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, 
It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot. He was wild. That these people... The second his back was turned and he was up on the mountain, Moses' anger burned hot. And he cast the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire and ground it to powder. Was he a little wound up? He was more than a little wound up. He scattered it on the water and he made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon him? Aaron, what could possibly cause you to do this? You know better than this. You couldn't say that they had pictures because they didn't have cameras. But you have to wonder what they did. And, and Moses is just, what did they do to you? So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people they are set on evil. Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad? When the heart of God's own people is set on evil. Isn't it sad when God's own people had rather go off on a tangent and embrace evil than serve the Lord and do His commandments? Verse 23, Aaron says, For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. When the cat's away, the mice will play. And the leadership, and I, I, I use that term loosely of Aaron here, the leadership that was left with the people had neither the faith, nor the courage, nor the maturity to stand strong on the word of God against the people's sin. Verse 24. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, I cast it into fire, and this calf came out. And he's not even being honest. In reporting to Moses what happened, he's not... It tells us in the previous part of what we just read that he fashioned it with an engraving tool. Didn't we read that? Moses made the calf. But when faced with that, he's doing the same thing that he did with the people. He's wishy-washy. He's not going to be completely forthcoming. He has neither the faith nor the courage to stand up and say, this is what happened. Verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained... For Aaron had not restrained them to the shame among their enemies... I want to stop right there, even though we may have to reread that verse. When the people around them come to understand that they're just unrestrained and they're acting like pagans, it's going to bring shame on God. They're not adhering to God's law. They're no different than the pagans around them. They're worshiping some golden calf like they had in Egypt. They brought this idolatry in. They're no different than the people around them. They can't stand and say, well, we're God's people. We answer to a higher standard. No, they can't say that because they're worshiping a golden calf. And it brings shame to God when God's people are unrestrained. But their leadership hadn't restrained them to their shame among their enemies. I'm not reading anything into this. You can see the words in your own Bible. 
When Moses saw that they were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained him to the shame among their enemies, then Moses stood up in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. In my Bible, I have those two words highlighted. Lord's side. Why? Because there's a choice that needs to be made. You're either on the Lord's side or you're not. Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, This is what God commanded. Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Two things I want you to see. Number one, verse 27 says, thus says the Lord God. Verse 28 says, they did according to the word of Moses. They did according to the word of Moses because Moses spoke the word of God. That's what I want you to see. It's the same thing. And the second thing I want you to see... These people strapped on the sword and they killed their own companions, their own brethren, their own biological brother, family, neighbor, companion. Not an easy thing to do. Verse 29, Then Moses says, Contrasecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day for every man as opposed to his son and his brother. I don't know. If the Levites were a party to making that golden calf, maybe they contributed to that golden calf. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. Specifically, I don't know. But I do know this. I do know that when they realized their error, they repented. That I do know. And they came to God and they were willing to do whatever it took. And later, the Levites were rewarded by God. Weren't they for this? Didn't they become the Levitical priesthood? They did. They were rewarded by God. Because when they saw the error of their ways and the error of the people, they stood up. They developed the backbone, they had some faith, and they did the right thing. But what I want us to see is this is human nature. This not, not standing up, but this idea of when the cat's away, the mice will play. This is human nature. This is something that, that winds its way, its insidious and deadly way, all up through the ages and the pages of the Bible. It's in a lot of different places. And sadly, even amongst the very people of God that ought to have known better. Turn to me in your Bibles to Judges. This isn't just a one-time deal. Judges chapter 2. Look what happens in Judges 2. Judges 2 and verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110. They buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnah, Harris, in the mountains of Ephraim, in the north side of Mount Gaash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. They bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. 
The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Here we go again. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so they couldn't stand before their enemies. Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them. For, these are his own people. These are his own people. And his hand is against them. Why is his hand against them? Because the moment that their leadership that is trying to get them to follow God is gone and out of the way, these people turn right back around and go right back into doing what they've been doing before. They turn right back around and they go back into sin. And sin is ugly and disgusting to God. Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them. As he had sworn, they were greatly distressed. In Judges chapter 8, we would see one more time, beginning at verse 32. Gideon, we all know the story of Gideon. Gideon was this great man of God. We know the story of the fleece. We know the story of his conquest. We know how he helped Israel. We know, we know that, okay? The story of Gideon. But I want to show you here at the end of that story, in verse 32 of Judges 8. Care to guess what happened as soon as Gideon was gone, as soon as the cat was away? Judges 8.32, Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Abizarites. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, as soon as he was dead, as soon as he was out of the way, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. And the cat's away, or dead, the mice will play. It didn't matter all that Gideon had taught them, it didn't matter all the sacrifices that Gideon had made. It did not matter all of the battles that Gideon had helped them to win. It did not matter all of the things that Gideon did for the Lord God Almighty in their midst, or how hard he worked to lead them. The moment he was gone, there they are. In fact, in proving the very fitting nature of the phrase, when the cat's away, the mice will play, the book of Judges ends with a very sad but appropriate epitaph of their efforts in Judges 21-25 where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In another illustration in the Old Testament of our featured expression, King Solomon in Proverbs 29.18 said, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Where the Bible is not enforced or, or being talked to, where the people not being led by God's word, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. But this idea, again, it winds its way, it threads its way all the way up through the Bible. It's not just the Old Testament. There's many examples in the New Testament. I keep you here till 7 o'clock tonight anyway talking about this. I won't, but I could. See, when the cat's away, the mice will play is the idea that without supervision, people are going to do what they want to do. Especially in regard to breaking the rules. The moment that the man of God's back was turned or he's gone for a moment, God's people returned to embracing their sin. We've seen it several times in the Old Testament. Tragically, we see it in the pages of the New Testament as well. 
We could turn there. If you want to, you can. I'm not going to go into great detail. But in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 44, we see it crystal clear. We've got Jesus' parable there of a vineyard. And this owner of the vineyard who sets the vineyard up, sets it up for these people, goes away on a long journey, wants the fruit of his labor, sends people back to get it. And those that are in charge of the vineyard that he left there, in charge of the vineyard, they kill all the people he sends back. When he's out of the way, they're going to do what they want to do. We'd see it again. Bursting forth from the Apostle Paul's address to the first century Ephesian congregation of the Lord's Church in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 32. You'll recall in that chapter, Paul is there, he's letting the Ephesian elders know that he's going to travel on, that he's going to be persecuted, that he's not going to be seeing their face again. And this is what he says. He says, I know... That after my departure, savage wolves will come in amongst the flock, not sparing the flock. He said, in fact, men from your own selves, from amongst yourselves, will rise up and seek to draw away disciples after themselves. Paul said, I know what's going to happen the minute my back's turned. The minute I'm gone, I know what's going to happen. They're going to come in here, and it ain't going to be pretty. Perhaps nowhere in the New Testament scripture is this tragic and fatal concept of when the cat's away the mice will play seen more clearly displayed than it is in the case of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and what is reported there. Than it is in the case of this adulterous couple that are so proudly parading and flaunting the absolute ugliness of their sin in the very face and worship assembly of the congregation of the Lord's saints. In Corinth. And in fact, they're there and they're flaunting this sin so strongly that the congregation gets caught up in it. They get swept away in accepting and condoning and supporting and embracing and, and being so proud of this sin. All the while, while the Apostle Paul, the man of God, is not there and present to biblically restrict and restrain their sinful behavior and their approval of sin. And so the Apostle Paul seeks to deal with it from a distance. And this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because the cat's away. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, he says, It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and if not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. He said, you're proud of this. What is wrong with you? Question. Where were the mature men of God? Where was their leadership that was willing to stand up to this proud parading of sin right into the heart and soul of the house of God? Where were they? I don't know, but they weren't there. So Paul says, I'm going to have to deal with this from a distance. For I indeed, he says in verse 3, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present. Him who has so done this deed. Don't talk, don't talk to me about, about not judging. Paul says, I've, I've, I've judged this and it ain't right. I've already judged as though I were present. He said, I'm not there. Yeah, the cat's away, but I'm telling you right now, he says, this ain't right. Him who has done this deed, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you see that phrase, what do you think? 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says, isn't it? Suppose he just said it kind of, well, in the name of. No. But he's saying, in the name of, by the authority of our Lord and all that is holy. When you are gathered together along with my spirit, because I can't be there right now with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Let me ask you a question. As you read those words from the heart and soul of Paul, do you think if Paul had been in that assembly in Corinth that he would have gone over the morning they walked in and said, Hey guys, great to see you. Love to have you. Life's awesome. How, what, you know, coming out of the closet the way you are. Man, this is so great. What's your dad think of this? That's all right. Don't worry about it. Suppose that's the way Paul would have greeted him? No. Don't believe that for a minute. But when the cat's away... The mice will play. Paul says, your glorying, your, your, your pride over this, your, it's not good. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you understand if you don't deal with this the way you're supposed to deal with this, that it's going to spread through the whole congregation and adultery is going to become just fine and everybody's going to be doing it because nobody's getting disciplined for doing it? Don't you understand this is going to corrupt the whole body of Christ? Therefore, purge out the old leaven. Get rid of this, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Let us gather around the Lord's table. Let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, not with malice and adultery and sin and all that stuff. Don't, don't keep the feast with all of that going on. That's so ugly to God. You're in God's house. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you, Paul says, in my epistle. Paul said, I wasn't there. Cat's away. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. He said, I told you, don't do this in God's house. Sin is disgusting to God. I wrote to you not to keep company with sexually immoral people. I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. Paul says, look, I'm not talking about the, those folks out there. They're all doing that. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reveler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Paul says, I have told you this, you can't do this. For what am I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away yourselves from yourselves, the evil person. He said, you can't welcome this. You can't be proud of it. You've got to, you've, you've got to put this person away from you. You've got to do this. Now, let me ask you a question. I know none of us were there. I understand that. I wasn't there. You weren't there. Or A lot of us are a lot older than we look, okay? No matter how old we look. I understand it. But let's just take for a minute, get in the time machine and put ourselves in that congregation in first century Corinth. Let's go back for a minute in our minds. And come Sunday morning, we see that couple right there. That couple right there that he's talking about. We see him coming at the assembly. We see them coming on arm in arm, knowing what they're doing, 
afraid in their sin. We see it. Paul's not there. There isn't a lot of leadership there, apparently. What would you have done? If you had known, what would you have done? What do you suppose the Apostle Paul would have done? Let me put it that way. What do you suppose the Apostle Paul would have done? Again, walked up and said, Hey, great to have you. Glad you're here. Come on in. Sit down. Take a seat. Don't worry about a thing. God loves you. Got you covered. From what I'm seeing here, Paul would have been the first one in their face to confront them with their sin. Whether it was popular or not. What about they get done in Corinth, they have their, their morning worship service. It, it breaks into the noon hour and they have one of their love feasts. Sort of like our, their love feasts were sort of like our fellowship dinner. They have one of their love feasts. And let's assume this same couple stayed. Just for supposing sake. What do you suppose Paul would have done if he'd have been there? Based on 1 Corinthians 5. See, I think Paul would have talked to him. I do. But you know what Paul would have talked to him about? I don't think he talked to him about the weather. And I don't think the Apostle Paul would have talked to him about sports. And I don't think the Apostle Paul would have talked to him about vehicles. You know what I think the Apostle Paul would have talked to him about? Because their souls were on the line. And he understood the ugliness of sin. You know what Paul would have said to him? He'd have confronted them face on and talked about nothing but their sin. And what they needed to do to get right with God. What do you suppose the good and proper and godly thing to have done would have been had you been there? Which of course you weren't. But if you were, what would you have done? Do you know what the church in Corinth... And we're talking about the church in Corinth. Do you know what the church in Corinth actually did when they got this letter from Paul? Do you know what they did? We know this is this black and white. When the Apostle Paul informed them of their sin, how proud and puffed up they were over this couple, I'll tell you what the church did. They repented. They repented. They changed the way they treated this man and this woman, and they no longer so warmly welcomed him, but they actually loved him enough to withdraw fellowship from him. The majority inflicted a punishment on him. They didn't eat with him. They didn't welcome him. They didn't associate with him any longer. Not for as long as he chose not to repent or perhaps confess his sin and the reproach that he had brought on the church. How do I know that? I know that, that because I know this man was restored. How do I know this man was restored? Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4-11, through 11, Paul discusses it with them. This man was restored. Paul said, forgive him and love him. How was that? Do you think Paul just said that if the man didn't make any changes? How many of you think that if this man and this woman continued in this, this affair, nothing else changed? How many of you think Paul would have said, hey, that's fine, no problem. Go for it. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4-11, through 11, love him, accept him. There's been enough pain inflicted. Do the right thing. Why? Because this man apparently had done the right thing. You see, God's wisdom works. 
Now, I'll tell you what, that church done absolutely the wrong thing if they had not accepted this brother back when he did the right thing. They'd have been like the older brother. But you know, the older brother in that story of the parable of the prodigal son, he was wrong. He was wrong because he did not accept his younger brother back. But his younger brother actually repented, come home and confessed. Did he not? I will go to my father and I will tell him. And he got there and he said, Father, I'm not fit to be called your son. He did the right thing. He, re he confessed. He repented. He turned. He came toward his father. Brethren, you and I need to be sure that we are always aware of Satan's schemes on both ends of the spectrum. We need to always be aware of the ever-present danger of turning back to and embracing sin in our midst the moment... That the man of God is turned or gone away for a bit. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Let us all make the commitment today, right down to the last man and woman amongst us, that we would never, 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 neither proudly welcome, embrace, support, or condone any ongoing impenitent sin of any saint living in direct defiance of God's commandments who is not willing to confess those sins and repent of them who might ever come in amongst us the moment the cat's away. On the other end of that spectrum, let us each and every one, male and female, make the commitment to always... And without reservation, always accept, without any exception, any brother or sister whom we have loved enough to discipline because we want their soul saved on the day of judgment. And we dealt with them God's way and they subsequently therefore decide to become obedient once again. They decide to, to confess their sin. They decide to repent of that sin and come forward and be forgiven by both Christ and us. We have no right not to accept them. Because if when the cat's away, the mice will sinfully play, they might all just be cast away when Christ returns on that day. But we thank God that our brethren in Corinth did not continue to play proudly with sin, but instead they repented. And you know, praise God, when the church repented, when the church did the right thing, guess what? That man was restored. Do we want our brethren restored who've fallen away? Do we or not? What is the best way to do that? To love them in their sin enough to say, hey, this ain't right. This has got to be fixed. Or say, hey, don't worry about it. Would that we would have the faith and the courage and the leadership... To do it God's way, no matter whom or where the preacher or the elders or the other congregational leaders may be, should ever the same situation happen to happen where we are located. Let's change that idiom and that expression. When the cat's away, let's still do it God's way. As we close tonight, I'm going to leave you with just how life and death serious such restraint of sin is according to God. We only have two options. And if you're going to come to me and talk to me about this lesson, make sure you've got a list of the references I've used so that we can look them up and I can see if I've made a mistake on any of them. Two options. First one's in Jeremiah chapter 14. Please turn there. Jeremiah chapter 14. 
beginning at verse 7. This is God's people crying out. They say, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. To sin against God just simply means we haven't done what God commanded us to do. Verse 9 in the middle says, Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. God's people are pleading with God not to leave their presence. They know they haven't done the right thing. They know they haven't handled it right. And they're pleading with God not to leave them. These are God's people. And the Lord says to them, Thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. And the Lord said to me, that is to Jeremiah, Do not pray for this people for their good. For when they fast, I'll not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Can we afford that? Can we afford that? No. Option number one is not to do what God told us to do, even though we're called by His name, to not restrain our feet. Option number two is by far the best one. It is in Psalm 119, verses 101 and 2, and it reads thus. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments for you yourself have taught me. I love the Lord. I love His church. I love all of you. And I love our fallen away brethren. But God has told us the do's and don'ts of how we're to deal with those situations. And I love you too much not to get up here and say, we need to do this God's way. Not some other way. And the only way that we are going to restore anybody is God's way. The lesson is yours. You can do with it what you will. I don't know what else to say. If there's anybody here tonight who's not a member of the Lord's Church, you've not been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, or maybe you're somebody who's struggling to do the right thing and you need the prayers of the church for strength. If you have a need, will you come to the front as we stand and sing?